A very good afternoon and today for this podcast um, we have three dance scholars who will be sharing um, their perspective on today's theme about traditional and contemporary. So allow me to uh, firstly introduce myself. My name is uh, Amin Farid, uh, also known by my stage persona Soltari and I am currently um, a Malay dance practitioner scholar and currently um, pursuing my PhD at Royal Holloway, University of London in the the in the Department of Drama, Theatre and Dance Studies. With me are my fellow colleagues who are also in the pursuit of their PhD as well. I have um, Elizabeth Chan. Hi. Um, she is a Chinese dance practitioner, researcher, and currently a PhD candidate at uh, the National University of Singapore with the um, Theatre Studies Department. And with us as well is Aparna Nambia, Hi! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she is an Odyssey and uh, Bratanatyam practitioner who has been mostly a scholar for the last seven years. Uh, currently, she is doing her PhD at the University of California, Berkeley in the Department of Theatre, Dance and Performance Studies. Uh, with us also, we have Nabila Said. Um, she will be in attendance, an active observer, and she is the editor of Arts Equator. Okay. So very excited, right, to, yes. to share um, our perspective about um, the traditional and the contemporary, especially since uh, we come from the, uh, if I can put square, square quotes, traditional circle. Yeah. Yeah, traditional art circle. So um, let's, let's have a conversation about the term <laughs> traditional and contemporary, right? And that's mm, a contested term. So anyone want to provide a beginning statement or beginning... Uh, conversation about <laughs> about uh, this conversation. So we're just looking at each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. I guess I mean what like what I was saying to Shai just now. He said uh, the traditional is already contemporary, right? And I I clarified a bit by saying that well, the traditional can be contemporary, but perhaps in some cases it, it might not be. And in what kind of cases do you think it, it, it isn't? Where the traditional isn't contemporary? Mm. Are there any are there any moments where you have thought that no, mm. the traditional is just traditional? Mm. Well, mm. I was thinking about both these terms as as terms, and you know we don't live in a world where where there is a clear demarcation between the traditional and contemporary. Everything is happening now, I guess. Um, but it's more like um, how traditional elements of traditional cultures, and for that we can get more specific and say the culture that preceded um, capitalism or feudal ways of life. We can also say before colonialism, although I'm not sure that's accurate. Um, but what elements from those parts, those t ways of life uh, linger now? And uh, definitely the arts is one space where there is some preservation, right? especially what we call the traditional arts. So I just like to think about how and why does the traditional continue to linger today, uh, especially in a hyper-modern space like Singapore. Yeah, and I, for me, it's a problematic term, right? It's problematic because in Singapore in particular, people think of the traditional in a very chronological sense. And especially when you're, we're talking about tra the traditional arts, it seems like you know, the art of yesteryears, right? Mm -hmm. But I find it very problematic because, you know, 
I'm still practicing what is regarded as that traditional art. Mm-hmm. And then, so am I not contemporary? Mm-hmm. Right? So, and a lot of times I have to justify myself and I find it very taxing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel that, you know, do I need to justify my form, um, you know, as being something of not of the past, but of today? Mm-hmm. So these are, you know, it, it adds to the complication and the complexity of these terminologies. Like we were saying earlier, it's very much a slippery um, slope, right? A slippery, uh, such a slippery term. And, you know, I think, you know, before we actually started this podcast, we had a very little, a uh, very short conversation about what are the three key words that could best help us in thinking through this slipperiness? Anyone wants to say what are the three key words? Yeah, we thought about this a lot. <laughs> actually, no. <laughs> but we did land upon like a Venn diagram of things that intersected and we came up with uh, preservation, continuity, and change. Yes, mm-hmm. and maybe um, Elizabeth, you know, you were saying that change doesn't quite um, sit very well in the Chinese dance um, well, circle. In Chinese traditional dance, already there are, uh, there are multiple Chinese dances, right? So for each different dynasty, there's a different style, and even today, the modern form, there's there are different schools of thought and different schools of dance. So. When I say change, actually what I mean probably as a practitioner and as a researcher is change with something of your own, new, added into it, which for me, innovation would probably be a, a better term or, or a term that has has that kind of connotation. Mm. Actually, innovation for me um, best uh, describes the Malay dance um, scene or the form as it as it has developed, right? So, um, in my research in particular, I've seen how the form um, had to meet societal demands, mm-hmm. and you know, looking at from its thirties, its beginnings in uh, Malay operas and then in films um, and urban entertainment parks. Mm-hmm. I've also innovation was a, a very key um, trait or characteristic of Malay dance. So you included many other Western forms, cha-cha, mambo, um, in, in adapting to, to popular culture during yeah. that period of time. Um, and today as well, it's innovation because it was also regarded as a form that could help in the nation-building agenda, mm. especially in this multiculturalness mm. that we had to be part of. Mm. Um, and so, so innovation seems to be quite, uh, you know, in relation to change, mm-hmm. But also a term that could also best describe how we we kept the form, but also adapted and find ways in making it relevant mm-hmm. to the local specificities, mm. right? And and it's not. I mean, we often say that I multiculturalism, but it, it did give us an opportunity to develop our forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, not us, but the our pioneers, mm-hmm. you know, in Chinese dance, Malay dance, and, and not just in dance, but also theatre. Mm. So so. Um, we didn't talk about this before, but I'd like to get your thoughts on what you think about the current kind of funding structure where like we are all dance scholars, but we probably would fall under the traditional arts category more than dance. So what do you guys think about that? Hmm. Aparna, you have anything, <laughs> any thoughts about it? I have so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> but mainly, I just think, um, you know, we have uh, certain forms of patronage um, and here it's mainly the state and the state is about efficiency like we they're just trying to manage difference in 
as best and efficient way as possible. Not to say that, oh, you know, poor state, this is the best they can do. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that this is what they're doing. Um, and it's also uh, common to many, like India has a similar kind of multicultural university, and uh, sorry, unity and diversity kind of setup. Mm -hmm. um, so I just think that for the purposes of um, divvying up funding from a common pool, um, the way that uh, our funders organize money is to think about there are Western forms mm -hmm. that can converse with a wider world, mm -hmm. and then there's a traditional form just about the the subsets. Like there's the Chinese cultural world and the Indian cultural world, and then we are also dealing with the fact that since I think 2000, Singapore decided to open it up as this more global cultural field, yes. cultural and economic and everything else, but mm -hmm. in, the, in terms of culture, suddenly all of our like smaller uh, little worlds mm -hmm. became exposed to the wider world, mm -hmm. has to compete with artists and forms from the wider world. Mm -hmm. So we are trying, like at least as an Indian dancer, I felt this pull that we need to start conversing with issues and themes and forms outside our little worlds, mm -hmm. but our funders don't seem to really sit with that at, at, at the moment. That's what I think. Well, I do feel like when I think about conversing with the wider world in today's context, the first things that I think about are like arts festivals, mm -hmm. or like performing arts markets. And mm -hmm. so far, uh, the kind of works that have uh, in the dance kind of community that have gone to these festivals and uh, performing arts markets are like contemporary dance. Mm. So we haven't. I, I don't know if it is us who haven't thought about bringing like Chinese, Malay, Indian groups there, or is there something that kind of discourages that in fact? Mm. Where if I bring, for example, a Chinese dance to a performing arts market which also has uh, a China stand, then where do I, like, then, you know, how do I justify my position? Do I have to? We, we don't know. I feel like these things haven't been really discussed yet in our, in our site. The complication for Malay dance is also its relation to um, the immediate uh, region, right? Mm -hmm. The Maritime Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. and how there is some sense of relation to the Alam Melayu or the archipelago mm -hmm. or the, the, the Maritime Southeast Asia. And I think my issue with the idea of funding as well, it's how we are also regarded as traditional arts, mm -hmm. that category, mm -hmm. um, and also how in a lot of these um, organizations, it's very hierarchical, right? Yeah. So you still have senior artists who continue to lead um, groups and associations mm -hmm. and and at times I do feel that they are still caught up in a moment when Singapore was still pushing for its nation-building multicultural Absolutely. agenda and they are very comfortable in that mm -hmm. direction mm -hmm. and and they are not also aware of the sort of difference or development in arts policies I think that's problematic mm -hmm. also at the same time we see English as a class marker yes. where most of these traditional artists are also uh, because of their seniority might not be able to converse or express themselves very well mm -hmm. in English mm -hmm. the sort of things that they wish to create and do mm -hmm. and sometimes because of that I feel that they get caught up mm -hmm. in what was before mm -hmm. because that, that seems to be a winning formula mm -hmm. um, and and as a result they, you know there's a stagnancy yes mm -hmm. I definitely agree but how how's the case like in for Indian dance or is it quite different? Because I know there are companies like 
like child? Mm-hmm. Or would we take a more international? Um, well, I think language is, is one thing, but you know, uh, Indian practitioners have, um, I mean, thinking about the demographic that engages with making art uh, among Indians in both India and here. Uh, they're well, con- they're conversant in English, and in fact, uh, I think one of the successes um, of Bharatanatyam as a form is that it had many early practitioners who were very, very articulate. And not only were they articulate in speaking English, they knew the philosophical basis that informed Western art. So they could say that, hey, we are different, but we have this whole other lineage that can be equal but different to Western classical forms, right? And I think that's true of practitioners today as well. They're very good at speaking about their work. I think it's more about, you know, the, the transition of that nation-building project that you're talking about. You know, like, the 20th century, there was one way to think about it. But today, at least when it comes to Singapore, the nation is not just in this island. Mm-hmm. There's an entry and exit of many different forms and people and ideas. So Chineseness is not just Singaporean Chineseness. You have to converse with what is from China. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the th- same thing with Indianness. So mm-hmm. I think uh, for the older generation uh, who are used to thinking of themselves as masters who set the, the tone for how forms will evolve, uh, now they must think about all these other factors that are now reshaping the relationship between the practitioner and the art. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. So there are two key words that we have yet to discuss right so there's preservation and continuity so i'm, I'm maybe i to look at preservation I'm, I'm wondering uh what are the sort of activities or um things that um your communities are doing in the name of preservation because in my um like i've talked about innovation of the malay dance form but today there seems to be a desire for preservation and i think that's also because um you know there is a jarring uh, difference between the sort of works that are being created by younger practitioners um, as opposed to their uh, predecessors mm-hmm. and I think predecessors as gatekeepers of culture yeah. might also seem and feel that there is a need to preserve what has been done. Mm-hmm. For me that's problematic because it seems as if innovation mm-hmm. could only happen or could only be done by a selected group of people mm-hmm. and it should stop there mm-hmm. and younger practitioners um, should uh, not be given that sort of privilege because they might abuse that sort of privilege right. somehow, right? Yeah. Um, so so I, I feel that, you know, this whole desire for preserving what is the form, re, you know, standardizing, you know, standardization and the sort of rigidity of mm. what constitutes the form has become the sort of debate and discussions of the community. Right. So I wonder, I wonder how is it for you guys? I'm like, I'm just thinking which groups in Singapore really try to preserve Chinese dance and it's, it's, a, it's kind of like a, what's that called, like a problematic question. Because Chinese dance as a form is not really traditional, it's modern. Mm. So if you were to do like really traditional, if you wanted to do as traditional dance as possible, like you want to go as traditional as possible, you would have to do historical research. Mm. And that's not being done right now. Mm. So so what people are doing in Singapore is like uh, repeating Mm. what is uh, already being taught or what has been taught in China since the 1950s mm. and so things like and they have been organized into things like syllabi mm. and training syllabi 
So they bring them, uh, they learn them, and then they bring them over, and then they teach them, and it, it, there's just this cycle. Mm -hmm. And because Chinese dance, there's such a huge body of like training and performance works, which include like Chinese classical and Chinese mm -hmm. folk. So it's, it, you could, throughout your lifetime, you could go through each of the dances and you will never be able to finish. Right. So, so in terms of preserving, which to me still has some sense of continuity, mm -hmm. right? Because you want to continue something from the past to the present, it, it's not happening as of yet. There is a lack of continuity, so therefore I, I don't think there is any kind of preservation happening. It's, for me, it's more like a repetition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, if I can ask yeah, Elizabeth yeah. this one question, you were saying that uh, the sort of uh, syllabi or the sort of training techniques that were learned in the 1950s in China mm -hmm. are being brought to Singapore. Mm -hmm. Are you also trying to say that there's also no evolution of these training systems? Um, because, you know, would you say that now in China they have progressed to different ways of learning Chinese dance mm -hmm. that the Singaporeans have yet to... Mm -hmm. Yes. know and learned about? Yes, relatively yes, because in China they started by uh, they started the dance form by institutionalizing it in training centers. Mm -hmm. So it was a very kind of uh, active effort to create a body or a language, mm -hmm. a physical language. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in Singapore we don't have training centers. Mm -hmm. We only have uh, performance troops as of now and then we have like amateur or interest training which uh, is kind of like the RAD of Chinese dance, RAD ballet syllabus of Chinese dance. So it's a uh, less rigorous, it's it's fun to learn but it's really more for like certificate and, and money, money. Yeah, so can I ask if these certifications are affiliated to universities or like institutions in China? Yes, one particular university. Oh, yeah. So the center is we always uh, refer back to Beijing Dance Academy. Mm -hmm. So the certifications come from there. If you graduate from there as well, you also have like higher status mm -hmm. in the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. How about you, Aparna? Yeah, it's a similar um, situation where the training, the fundamentals are basically, they have to receive the attestation from the center, mm -hmm. which is in India. Mm -hmm. Right, so uh, for us it would be the Kalakshetra, and then I guess there are some other university affiliations that you can get. Um, but uh, that's how uh, dancers are trained here. And also to think about like why do, wh who are these dancers who are training? Most of them are not training with the intention of professionalization. It is really to acquire something of a preserved bit of some idea of Indian culture, you know? Because that is the last resort uh, in, in everyday life. We are not, in, uh, we're not encountering or immersed in any anything that is actually Indian, it's a mix. It's a, it's contemporary life. It's mm. a, it's an explosion of different things. Mm. But this is where you go to get some idea of an untouched, preserved India, right? <laughs> so that's that's why I think that's why a lot of people send their children to take these mm. these uh, programs and certifications and. Mostly people are satisfied with that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like preservation, uh, when I think about actual practitioners, the professionals, mm -hmm. um, there is, yes, they teach the repertoire, which in our case too, um, are modern kind of reconstructions of medieval dances. Mm -hmm. Or um, they're also modern, like new works made in the 1950s, 60s, 
also are now in our repertoire mm -hmm. and it's just taken um, received kind of uncritically as ancient as like our culture from the past mm -hmm. but uh, practitioners today do this thing which I think that a lot of Chinese dance practitioners did in the 20th century too when they were formalizing Chinese dance is to go do research mm. on folk forms mm -hmm. or like um, excavate these literary resources mm -hmm. that can be called authentically our culture from the past mm -hmm. and then construct new works on that. Mm -hmm. So even though it's not preservation, it's actually innovation, mm -hmm. but it's a way to preserve the idea of the form as something intact Indian, mm -hmm. intact from the past, mm -hmm. that is not a Western modern mm -hmm. thing. So it is definitely positioning itself in, in, in opposition to something. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I think it's very interesting um, to listen to what the two of you are saying, right? First, I'm, I'm also hearing the idea of a culture that is central, right? A center, a center culture. Mm -hmm. Then also the idea of scholarship. So for the Malay dance community in particular, where is the center, right? Mm. Because Singapore is part of this idea or the concept of the Malay world. And the Malay world has been divided into different nation states, mm. right? You have Malaysia, Indonesia, um, Brunei. So where is the center, right? So do we go to Malaysia? Do we go to Indonesia? Mm. And what's also interesting that in Singapore itself, um, Prior to the idea of the nation state or you know the formation of it in 1965, we were the place where many people from the archipelago came, right? Yeah. So you, you have people from different parts of Indonesia, yeah. Malaysia coming mm -hmm. and seeing Singapore as the center of popular culture, mm -hmm. right? And so now today, if we want to see or we want to learn what is Malay dance, so where do we go? Mm -hmm. So actually this idea of an academy has been in the forefront or has been in the conversations of of the community for the longest time you know we've been talking about starting an academy we have been talking about okay oh hey let's um do a joint venture let's sign an mou with an indonesian university or a malaysian university and this has been happening but at the same time there is also this desire for a Singaporean Malay dance identity. Mm -hmm. So this is also the problem, uh, the problematics in the scene. At the same time also, when we're talking about scholarship, mm -hmm. there's been very little written about Malay dance or a sense of criticality. Mm -hmm. um, from my own research, a lot of those who have written about Malay dance were non-Malay dance practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and a lot of the works that are written are very informative, mm. not that critical. Mm -hmm. So I so 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 that's the sort of dearth in knowledge um, about Malay dance in the region. Oh well, in in Singapore, I cannot say in the region because Malaysia and Indonesia are in the forefront of performing arts research about the Malay arts. Mm -hmm. So so I I a lot of those research I I know I I do use them for my for my own research. But at the same time, I feel that the trajectory that the Singapore Malay dance scene um, has gone um, uh, with, you know, since independence, separation from Malaysia in 1965, has, uh, you know, it's a unique trajectory on its own. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, talking about, so, so like I mentioned just now, there, there isn't like uh, historical research in dance being done in Singapore, but there definitely is uh, research being done in China and in Taiwan. Mm. So they have done like really 
uh, as historically authentic for a recreation of reconstructions of ancient mm. dances, mm. Uh, whether Confucian dances or court dances, uh, in in their areas. But like you said, Singapore's dance scene has a very kind of unique trajectory, and isn't that also because of uh, the way our ethnic categories have mm. contributed to the nation state? Mm. It's not like the role of the dances that we we do have a very I don't know like a a unique in, in, to put it nicely a unique place or mm. unique role or mm. um, unique meaning not so relevant in in the today's con uh, context of nation building maybe or like uh, what's it called bringing Singapore up to the global kind of art scene. Mm. Perhaps it is that our forms are not that relevant in that context anymore. Do you think so? Are our forms not relevant globally? Our traditional forms? What, uh, in the in the eyes of like the Singapore state. Ah, okay, I understand. Mm. Mm, I don't know. This is a very good question. Um, so when I ex I'm. Uh, I came to Singapore in 2004 to do university, under, undergrad, NUS. So at that time, I was actually really um, fascinated by the work that Mrs. Bhaskar was doing at the NUS Center for the Arts, mm -hmm. where she was just churning out brand new original works mm -hmm. every six months. Mm -hmm. And it was nonstop. And I, I think in five years with her, I did 10 productions. Mm -hmm. With the with the ensemble, it was always a, sh a shifting ensemble, mm -hmm. and I was always fascinated how every work had so much research. It was such a effort of creating music and setting the choreography and developing a theme, and mm -hmm. um, it was just new works coming out using the Bharatanatyam language. And this was something I had not experienced in India. Mm -hmm. Not to say that I worked with any major companies in India. I mean, I was very young, but. Uh, just that it was happening here and it was being funded and facilitated by the university. Mm -hmm. So there was this experimentation which was happening so quietly. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I stepped into research, and I would love to get into that to mm -hmm. talk about how we came into doing our work, right? Mm -hmm. um, is also like one of the reasons I wanted to do more research was that uh, I just felt it wasn't getting its due recognition. Mm -hmm. And not to say that. Um, you know, even the fact that this work was being supported and funded by, by a national university uh, is not exceptional and amazing. Mm -hmm. I can tell you for sure this kind of work would be very difficult to do in India, at least at the time that I'm talking about, mm -hmm. the mid to early 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing that it's happening here, but also I would love for it to be written about, celebrated, uh, scrutinized, observed, criticized even. Like mm -hmm. we don't even have a strong critical um, kind of machine or I don't mm -hmm. machine like community that's mm -hmm. able to just say like these works are good for the fact that they tried something mm -hmm. but they're technically weak or these works are technically strong but they don't make you feel anything mm -hmm. you know like simple things like having a community that is able to watch and mm -hmm. say this is great or this is not mm -hmm. But basically, that's what fuels this kind of innovation and desire to keep it effervescent, to keep it like young and uh, fresh, <laughs> right? So uh, I do feel that you might be right. You know, like we don't uh, the work, the the traditional work in Singapore is not seen as a space of great importance mm -hmm. where innovation and a you know original form can come out. Mm -hmm. But I do think it has so much potential, so much talent. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
I would say that um, looking at the sort of attention one of the uh, groups in Singapore here um, is getting, uh, such as Prisma, for example, mm-hmm. um, they are they brand themselves as a contemporary group, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary dance, but you know working with the traditional form. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting, you know, the sort of attention that they're getting from NEC as well, um, as opposed to the other more mainstream traditional. Malay dance groups um, because there is a willingness to challenge or a willingness or a sense of freshness right I say freshness meaning a sense of re-looking at the form with fresh eyes right so this is of course ca- causing some um, some uneasiness within the community as well because it means to say that that winning formula that we were talking about doesn't seem to but yeah doesn't seem to work or it requires a relook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm also thinking that is that something that we must do, right? But you know, a prisma trajectory on its own is is very unique. Mm-hmm. So and if everybody's going to follow suit, then you no, know, what is the difference? I feel that an ecosystem mm-hmm. of of people working on you know canonizing mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and people who are willing to challenge, mm-hmm. provoke. It's doable, you know, having that both, both, both having both parties present in this ecosystem. But what's needed, and what Aparna said just now was true, is this sort of discourse that needs to be present to be able to see how they can fit off each other and without having to feel threatened. Yeah. So I think this is something that needs to be discussed or needs to be looked at, um, so that we can live. Well, we don't need to live peacefully in a sense. You know, we don't. Let's you know just be politically correct, but mm-hmm. allow ourselves to be critiqued. Allow ourselves to to go through some some pain, mm-hmm. so that we can gain, mm-hmm. right? And and this is the sort of experience I got when I was in Malaysia. I, I was a fellow there for a while, and the sort of conversations that I I had with Malaysian scholars mm-hmm. because of the passion that Malaysian scholars have and and the uh, maturity in their scholarship has given them the vocabulary, the experience for them to interrogate me. But I appreciated that because it was an engaged audience. And this is not only an audience of Malay dance activists, but of performance studies. And they were very willing to participate. Now in Singapore, the problem with the sort of discourse that we have is that um, people are not, we don't know about each other's forms, right? And half the time we, we are listening it with fresh ears, mm-hmm. so we are we are just agreeing with whatever the other person is talking about because we don't know. Yes. Right? Is this the first time I'm hearing this for the first time? Mm-hmm. So if we have this inter um, dialogue, intercultural, interdiscipline mm-hmm. dialogue, then that will be interesting. So at least we are learning of one of each other's mm-hmm. um, news, each other's trajectories, mm-hmm. so that we can have this conversation. Yeah. Yes. I was thinking about what you were saying, like how Prisma is this unique little thing, it's kind of singular. So there's something about this fear to take risks and experiment Mm -hmm. that I think comes from within our own circles, our respective cultural circles. Something about if we try and deviate too much from the language, which would in fact facilitate the kind of interdisciplinary, inter-ethnic form Mm -hmm. discussion. I think there is a lot of 
active discouragement from doing that. Mm. Um, not just from within the community, yes. Uh, you know, I've heard this so many times about certain companies work, uh, especially Indian dancers who try to do serious contemporary work, which means that they will not be you know, limited to the formal aspects, including costume, uh, including um, the usage of uh, technique, etc. Being dismissed by traditional practitioners saying, oh, that's not our form at all. We can't call that our form. And then there's also the fact that you can't get funding as either a contemporary company or a traditional company because you know, it's, there in are, it's in between and, and you know, people are telling um, the funders that, oh, this is not traditional, but at the same time, it is still such a small thing that it cannot actively enter the contemporary uh, funding category, right? So it's, it's risky, I feel, uh, and if, if, if it weren't risky, I feel like, yeah, there would be more people doing it and then we would be just like a, any other uh, innovative dance or art scene and that would be ideal. I, I, I wonder if it's a question about communication or, or uh, competence in articulation as well because, and this is something that I realized as I was doing my PhD that uh, the, the something we assume as common sense is not common sense for different cultures. So even like Chinese language scholarship versus English language scholarship is it, it, the cultural assumptions for what constitutes Chinese is totally different. So in, in the Western scholarship, we have we already we I'm saying we <laughs> we are already very postmodern. We don't think there's kind of like a essential kind of mm. uh, ghost or like essence of mm. culture. But in Chinese studies, that is still very accepted. That's a widely accepted notion. So the I I just. When the moment I bring this up, there's confusion already. Mm. So when I, it's not just also about like the traditional companies wanting to like take risk, but yeah. also like how they articulate, mm. why, what kind of risk they want to take, and also if the contemporary uh, audiences or the pe- the audiences who are more used to watching contemporary works or used to funding on contemporary works, if they are willing to look at it from another angle, mm. despite their postmodernity, despite their post-structuralism, mm. are they willing to you know, take another kind of perspective or to go and understand why they phrase things in their way instead of just assuming that they're okay, they're, they're backward, they haven't you know, right. understood what we've, the kind of progress that we've made so right. far. Yeah. And I wonder, Elizabeth, whether this um, the, the the thoughts and the contestations that you've just brought up are some of the fuel that oh. is pushing you to do this research. Maybe you want to share a little bit about why you you okay, you decided to embark on this. Well, I mean, I I when I started my university education, uh, it was it was like my dream to do full time dance. Uh, to be in a full-time dance program. That was my dream. It wasn't to be a full-time dancer. I just wanted to get to university. I realized there were a lot of things that I couldn't understand because one, I was educated and I grew up in Singapore and not just culturally but also in terms of knowledge. So simple things I would ask like why would a certain movement or a certain kind of aesthetic look good versus why something or a you know, why is this the correct version? It, actually, it was just that question. Why is this correct? My teachers wouldn't be able to answer. I mean, they would, they would tell me, well, because this you know, fits the aesthetic features, or but it, it doesn't go to the why. Mm-hmm. And so 
along the way, uh, this question was really the, the main thing that led me to want to find out for myself. So where did these things come from? Okay, we can go back to 1954. They have a lot of records. Like, okay, we, we see circles in Chinese culture. Like, circles are beautiful. So let's add a lot of movements that are circular. But then where did that come from? Why, why are circles beautiful in Chinese culture? So, I, you know, I just wanted to dig. I was curious. And on a more practical level, I just wanted to be able to have a stable job or mm. career that would allow me to stay and dance. Uh, without me having to kind of like kill myself every mm -hmm. every time I had a rehearsal, every time I had a class, because at that point in time, my body was already kind of I knew my body wasn't suitable for full time dancing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as long. It wasn't as flexible. It wasn't as strong as the full time dancers out there. And so, being interested and also curious in research, then I decided to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you, Elizabeth. And Aparna, you know, I, do you see parallels in your journey as well? I see parallels for sure. <laughs> um, but I think it's just um, the way that you can contribute to what you love. So like Elizabeth, yes, I was very passionate about dance and I just wanted to see how can this be a part of my life. Um, and uh, you see that it's not just because, I mean, there are many reasons, but some of it you see is that there's a systematic issue, right? Um, who gets to dance is a question of who has the time and money to dance. Uh, the big time practitioners in Indian classical dancing, I'm being very specific here, uh, are, are those unfortunately mostly women who can afford to do it. It's an expensive career path with very little return. Uh, and so I just wanted to see you know, how does the economics aspect uh, affect the, the aesthetics of, of our forms, of our, of our dance? How does the fact that our society is arranged in a certain way affect who gets to practice and who gets to call the shots about what the audience is watching? And then, of course, uh, there's this uh, important thing is that I met certain people who really made me think that it might be worth my while to focus my energy on um, observing and writing about their work. And for me, those two people in, in Singapore were definitely, first it was Mrs. Bhaskaranta Bhaskar, and then secondly, it was Raka Maitra, who was the artistic director of Chok, um, or Chok as we call it, although everyone else calls it Chok, <laughs> but it's Chok. Um, <laughs> and it means square, it means um, town square or community. So it's a place to gather. And um, what I liked about what Mrs. Bhaskar does at NUS Center for the Arts and also what Chalk does is that um, many different kinds of forms, uh, I'm talking about dance forms and movement practices, uh, enter into our training space and also our, uh, the choreographic um, methods of these, of these artists. Uh, and that kind of uh, innovation was exciting to me. And I really wanted to write about how um, you know, Indian dance practice is an innovative form. Like, Indian theatre has already far surpassed that because of what happened, you know, with the intercultural theatre movement and mm -hmm. uh, if it's right to call it a movement, but yeah, mm -hmm. uh, of that era, you know, of all these external practitioners from the West coming in and making um, all these opportunities to for the forms to evolve mm -hmm. uh, and there somehow being less uh, pushback from the practitioners themselves um, mm -hmm. and has its own kind of colonial politics which is another story mm -hmm. but Indian dance on the other hand has been largely conservative um, and I think my working theory is that it's because it's associated with um, 
putting an artistic practice that reflects culture on the bodies of women. So it's something that is very charged. So uh, this is what took, brought me to this form, the, the people who are taking some risks and doing new things and being kind of unapologetically creative in their practice, regardless of the ecosystem surrounding them. Mm. Hearing both your stories, I had time to reflect upon mine too, because I need to talk about why I'm doing this yes, in the first place, please. right? <laughs> so, you know, other than the fact that, you know, there's a dearth of um, scholarship on Malay dance in Singapore, I think it was also from my experience uh, when I was studying in Australia, I did cultural studies um, and communication studies. And through my cultural studies, I was uh, questioning a lot about my position as being a minority um, in Singapore and also seeing that my form is also a very marginal form because of the fact that it's regarded as traditional, chron- chronologically backward. And so I wanted to see how I could best understand the form in relevance to today mm-hmm. and also the fact that you know actually we are very innovative mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. it's actually very innovative even till today mm-hmm. but it's just that you know we because we had to conform to being part of this um, well identity making project or this idea of, of fitting into a category mm-hmm. So I wanted to see what more I can say through research. Um, and with that also, I would hope that my research could help or could um, get other uh, younger practitioners to also partake in research, mm-hmm. partake in conversations mm-hmm. and discourse. Uh, hopefully in the near future, there are other scholars, not only myself, because at this moment it's, you know, it's quite tokenistic lah. Eh? Mm. Um, the only other person, but I would hope that there'll be more, so that you know it won't be such a lonely journey. Yes. Um, that said, sometimes I also don't want to say that you know having a PhD means that I know everything, no. but I think it's more of you know we we are spending four to six years of our lives dedicating ourselves to this, yes. so we might know a little more. Mm. And we are using that little more to 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 spearhead discussions, yeah. which at this moment probably we are we are having discussions, but not critical ones. Mm-hmm. So I hope in the near future, uh, my research and and my expertise can be uh, well used within my community and communities beyond. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now that said, mm-hmm. I think you know this conversation can you know it can be something that uh, we can take um, a whole day just discussing. <laughs> before we end, let's each um, you know say something before we do this. Okay, so I wanted to leave us with a closing thought. Um, I I think uh, tradition and traditional art in Singapore gets uh, gets relegated to the margin. Mm-hmm. I just want to leave the listeners with the thought that. Uh, traditional practice is really about our shared future. It's not about one community's ability to preserve or perpetuate their ideas. It's really about uh, this rich resource being available to everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the work of artists and writers and cultural practitioners to draw from there and make it available to mm-hmm. wider mm-hmm. Uh, community, make it trans- you know, accessible. Mm-hmm. What I would like to say to the Chinese dance practitioners in this scene is that what you're doing is very valuable and the kind of innovations, the kind of pieces you are making are really, uh, they're really worth a lot and they'll be worth even more if they could be built on even 
for a longer period of time and with a wider audience. And by that, I mean that it has to be in conversations with, with other practitioners, with practitioners from other disciplines. And, and there has to be a lot more openness in order for everyone to enjoy the good work that you've done. Yeah. If I could leave with my own closing um, thought as well, the Malay dance scene, we were very integral and we are integral in, in creating this diversity, mm. um, meeting the diversity of, of our nation. Mm. Uh, but also at the same time, I think we can do with more critical discourse and conversations. I think there is a disparity between the thoughts, veterans' thoughts and the, the thoughts of the younger practitioners. I think we can do with more discourse and also, of course, with scholarship and discussions. But what do you mean by critical? What I mean by critical would mean that uh, we don't take the knowledge that we have for granted mm -hmm. and that we need to excavate it a little more or at least see or appreciate that there are differing views and opinions mm -hmm. and to see from those opinions how it affects ours mm -hmm. or how... Because sometimes I feel that... Uh, in discussions, mm. people are speaking the same thing mm. with the same desire, same passion, mm. but we're speaking in two different vocabularies. Mm. So it seems like one is, you know, it's like the chicken talking and the yeah. duck is talking at the mm. same time. But they have the same desire. They want to go together, walk together into somewhere, you know. <laughs> but the problem is they're, they're speaking two different languages. Yeah. And we must not take for granted a multi-generational way of working needs work. A multi-generational multi <laughs> way of discussing needs time to grow, but it needs to go through some degree of experimentation. Yeah. Because I cannot assume what my father is talking about to be something which I can fully understand, mm. that I need time to understand his context. Mm. right? So I think younger practitioners must also try to understand where the veterans are coming from. Mm. The veterans, on the other hand, must also learn to understand that the, the desires of today's youth or practitioners are different mm. because of the social circumstances that we're growing up in. The environment in. is already so different. Yeah. So I've, I've been in all these discussions and I see that there are parallels, mm. but such disjunctures because of uh, the way we are talking about it. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I think, I think this is a commonplace um, trait and, and um, uh, disparity that we're seeing in our communities mm -hmm. and I think you know our listeners if you're listening <laughs> we are very passionate and we see uh, growth and development uh, but you know I think there is definitely room for criticality for um, openness, openness mm -hmm. and discourse mm -hmm. and with that uh, we will end this um, podcast today so yes. thank you so much and we hope thank to um, talk to you in the near future yes. bye